Well, when you think about life, there are really, there are a lot of decisions, but there are three major decisions which we think about. One is to accept or reject Jesus Christ as Savior. One is to serve, the next one is to serve Jesus Christ. And then the third one is to marry or not. And if yes, then, then who do we marry? And these are important because, number one, you think about it, the first one determines your eternal destiny. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, you're saved and you're saved forever and you have eternal destiny. If you decide, number two, that determines the rewards you have, if you determine decide that you're going to serve Jesus Christ, it will determine the rewards you have when you stand before your Savior and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And the third one determines who you will have as a partner on this earth. That's the thing about marriage. We It's a partnership here because we, we know that Jesus talked about that in the eternal state there won't be marriage or given in marriage so who we marry here is who we we have as a partner while we're on this earth we want to focus on marriage because uh, in this evening's passage it deals with it marriage is so important oftentimes we joke about it uh, there's a book it was called growing up isn't hard if you start out as a kid it's written by david heller and he he talks about he interviewed some children concerning marriage and dating i'll just give you a few of them here's a, a little person named kit 10 years old said being married is, is, is better because you can always share things with your husband. Like if you're driving and you're in a car accident, you can always say it was your husband's fault. That's what Kit says. Jane, age 10, says nobody really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all, and you find out who you're stuck with. And that's that one. And then Craig, age 9, says marriage means spending a lot of time together even if you don't want to. <laughs> Haddon Robinson, who used to be the president of Denver Seminary, taught at Dallas Seminary for a while, but he was the president. He said, you know, I never knew true happiness until I got married, and, and then it was too late. <laughs> uh, they say marriage is like a cafeteria. You pick what looks good, and then you pay for it later. Yeah. Norm Wright was a, is a counselor and author. He does a lot of good stuff. He said this, when I got married, I was looking for the ideal, and then it became an ordeal, and now I want a new deal. Anyway. <laughs> Marriage has adjustments. They, they, you know, the truth is they say that all marriages are happy. It's just that living together part that causes all the trouble. Well, what is your view of marriage? Truthfully, for me, the happiest day of my life was when I got to marry Jean. And uh, uh, I, I, we've had a great life, and I thank the Lord for that. Marriage is God's idea. He brought the man and the woman together, the first divine institution. God made the woman for the man. We'll see it as we go through the passage. As we look at Genesis chapter 2, God creates the woman for the man, the institution of marriage. Let me remind you, it, back in chapter 1, he gave the overview, sort of the big idea. He said this, Genesis 1, 26, 27. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If we didn't have a Genesis chapter 1, we'd think, okay, he made the man and the woman at the same time. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, you realize that he's going to give us the details of what happened. And that's the way Hebrew writing is. The first chapter, a lot of times, is an area that's the big overview. And then he picks the important thing out of that big overview and goes to the detail. Well, in the creation, six days of creation, the most important one was the creation of man. And so he gives us the details in chapter 2. And we find out that he took the man, he put him in the garden, made the man, and he gave him some responsibility and then gave him the female. We saw the six things 
Uh, in, in the chapter that we've been looking at, there was creation of the male, then he put the garden, then we got the description of the area, then the responsibility was to take care of the land, then there's the command that you can eat from all the trees, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then the last thing is really where we are is the creation of the female. Notice back at verse 7 of chapter 2, he says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now we said that the name uh, Adam is from Hebrew Adama. Adama means the dust or the dirt. And so he formed man out of the dust. That's why later on when, when we fall, when mankind falls, he said from dust you were made and from dust you will return. That's the idea. So the man is the, is the ground basically. And it says the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. He formed Adama from the dust and breathed in him the breath of life. And he became a living being. A being to have relationship and fellowship with God, made in the image of God, special, unique, different than all the animals, all of those things. And he gave him responsibility. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. That responsibility, it was work. And we talked about this last time, that work was not, was not a curse. That man worked before the fall. Now, work is cursed now. In fact, the whole world is cursed. The whole creation groans and travail, as it says. But work is not a curse, but it is cursed. That we're to do our work is under the Lord. We talked about that. Then the command came. And, and the, uh, uh, that was, yeah, the command is two things. There's the positive and the negative. The positive, you can eat from any of the trees. But the negative, not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look at verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. He said, the whole garden. See all this, all this food, all this stuff? You can eat from it. But, verse 17, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, we talked about this last time. He said you can't eat from it because in the day you eat from it, you will die. And then Hebrews says, die and you shall surely die. And we talked about this. Most likely the idea was spiritual death and would result in a physical death because the moment they ate from the tree, the moment they ate from that fruit, they died spiritually right then. It took a long time for them to die physically. We know physical death is a result of spiritual death. So he said this is the tree. Literally, it says the tree which brings the knowledge of good and evil. And the plan was... We looked at it. We said, here's what was the plan. Here's this tree, the tree from right and wrong. This is how you know right from wrong. He says, don't eat from that tree. If Adam, or if they do not eat from that tree, they learn right from wrong by doing right. If they eat from the tree, they learn right from wrong by doing wrong. And so the bottom line is, he says, in the day that you eat from that, you're going to die. You're going to die spiritually. You'll die physically. And that's exactly what happened. The day they ate that, we'll see that in just a couple of weeks as we get into chapter 3. The day that they eat that, they die spiritually right then. They lost their fellowship with each other. They lost their fellowship with God. The wages of sin is death. Spiritual death leads to physical death. Man fell. He comes into this world. Uh, in fact, after we all made in the likeness of Adam. We come into this world spiritually dead. And we need to be made spiritually alive. And only by faith in Jesus Christ can we be born again, can we be changed, and can we have eternal life. Now, man is in the garden. The command not to eat from that tree. And God now has more to do. He realizes man needs this helpmate. Look at verse 18. This is where we start tonight. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. 
Now, God said, if you notice this, the name Lord God, we talked about this. It, all of chapter 1 is Elohim, which is the, the, the name for God. In fact, it's the plural aspect of God. In Hebrew, El is singular, Elohim is plural, and all the way through it's God, God, God. And you get to chapter 2, really about, oh, uh, verse 7, it says, and the Lord God, and uh, that's Yahweh, Y-H-W-A, that's the personal name of God. The, the, the personal God there uh, made the man. And now in verse 18 it says, And the Lord God, personal God says, It's not good for, now notice, it didn't say it is not good for man to be alone. If your Bible is looking at it carefully, it says it's not good for what? The man to be alone. We need to talk about that here in just a second. But here is the ever-existing God, and he says it is not good. Notice, so far, everything's been good. This is the first thing that's not good. He said it is not good for the man to be alone. Loneliness is a hard thing. Now, it says the man. Sometimes I'll ask when we do premarital counseling, I'll say, you know that passage says not good for the man to be alone. Does that mean it wasn't good for Adam to be alone or good for any man to be alone. And almost everybody says, well, I think it, it means that it's not good for mankind, man to, to go through life by himself. Well, it is true that God seems like that for, for most people, God uh, has a marriage partner. But in this passage, it literally says it is not good for the man to be alone. And I think it is talking about Adam because let's guess what? If he was alone for the rest of the time, where would we be? It wouldn't be anybody else. So it is not good for the man to be alone. And, and, and so loneliness, it, 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 and you, you can be lonely in the middle of a packed crowd of people. But he saw that, that Adam was lonely. And the, and the reason, is, there's nothing that matches him. We're going to see in just a second that he brings all the animals by. There's nothing that matches him. So notice what he says. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him and there's two the two hebrew words there is helper and suitable and they and they really go together the word helper we mentioned this last week the helper the word helper means to be an aid one that is capable of 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 helping to give aid to an individual he's saying i'm going to make someone that will be able to aid him to help him to give to actually help him do things that he's not capable of doing and then the word suitable literally means a compliment. It means the opposite. It means that here's I'm gonna make somebody that's like him, but at the same time not like him. And in fact, it's sort of the opposite of him. And we talked about this last week. Aren't men and women, men and women, we're we're not exactly the same, are we? I mean, do we think the same? And do we, we are emotions the same? No. In fact, we would say we're a lot different. We would say, in fact, sometimes men and women go, "You are so different." Yes, we are. We are, and it's on purpose. That's the way he did it. He did it on purpose. Uh, he said, I'm going to make a helper that is opposite, complement of him. John R. W. Stott says, the man and the woman complement each other. She's able to fill up what is lacking because they match. And the wife's strength becomes the husband's, and the husband's strength becomes the wife's, and, and they would match one another. And notice it says, to be a helper suitable for him. In the Hebrew, it has an idea of according to him. This is the one that's going to be according to him, the one that's going to match him. And this helper will be the perfect one for him. And a lot of you, when you, as you think about your spouses or your mates, as if you're married, you say, you know, God brought that person to my life. And when the, the longer we're together, the more we look at our lives, we realize we really match each other. I mean, God did that. We, we match. And, and, uh, many couples, when I do premarital counseling, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll talk to them about it and they'll say, you know, the, the more we look at our lives, the more we realize that we fit each other. God, God did that. 
Well, watch what he does. You know, we talked about it last week. I said it was not good for man to be alone, so I'll make a helper suitable. And, and I said, so he made the woman. But that's not, that's not what he did. Not right then. Notice what it says. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, it was his name. Before he got made the woman, he decided to have Adam basically name all the animals. Now, when it says out of the ground the Lord God formed, literally in the Hebrew it says he had formed. Out of the ground which he had formed, he said he brought every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what it would call them. So he's going to bring these animals to Adam. And we say, why is he going to do this? There's a twofold purpose. One, he's going to show the dominion of man over the animals. Let me think about it. He's going to say giraffe, hippopotamus, uh, you know, monkey. I mean, he's just going to name them as they go by. He's going to name these animals. But there's a second reason. It's going to show that he was alone, that nothing matched among the animals. I mean, you think he could name them all, and we don't know how long it took to name all these animals. But as he named them, as he did it, as he did, he said, you know, they're all, they're all nice. They're all great. But there's not another one that looks like me. There's not another one that matches me. I mean, they all match each other, but they don't match me. And so it says that the man gave to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper, an aider, complement suitable for him. There was nothing there that matched. The idea of helper suitable is not negative. Sometimes when we do premarital counseling and we talk about that the, the, the woman is to be the helper for the man. And sometimes uh, because of our culture and because of some of the things that are written and because of uh, all this, people say, well, I don't want to be a helper to any man. Well, it's not a negative term. It's a very positive term. Very positive. And he says there was no helper suitable for him. Man has dominion over all the animals, but he's alone because nothing matches him. So look what happens. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Now, he causes deep sleep. The word deep sleep is really a trance. It's the same word, same Hebrew word that's used later on. If you, if you, I don't know if you'll remember this or not, but uh, when King Saul was trying to kill David... One time that uh, David and one of his cousins, Abishai, were with him, his nephew, excuse me, and, and uh, they looked down there and Saul was in the middle of the camp and all the soldiers were around him. And so David and Abishai decided to sneak into the camp. And it said that the Lord God put a deep sleep over Saul and his men. And so David and his men, they were able to walk right into the camp, go right up to Saul, pick up his water jug, pick up his spear, and walk out of the camp. Because of this deep sleep. And then when they woke him up, David said, hey, hey, look what I have. And of course they looked around and they went, how did you get that? You know, and David was trying to say, I'm not trying to kill you, Saul. Why are you trying to kill me? I'm not trying to kill you. But this is the same Hebrew word, a deep sleep. And so he says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And then it says, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. He's going to take that part of the man and, and, and he's going to make the woman. Christendom was a, was a famous writer, second century, said, she didn't come from his head, so she'd be above him. And she didn't come from his feet, 
so she'd be below him. She came from his side, so she'd be beside him as a partner and a helper. And that's really true. Think about it, you know. He, he has this one who's going to be his partner, his helper, the one who would go through life with him. And that's, that's what many people we're looking for. We say, I want somebody to, to go through life with me. And by the grace of God, for many of us, we, he, he provides that for us. But it says, for Adam, there was nothing. And so he caused him to fall into a deep sleep. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Now look at the next verse. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now the word fashioned literally means built. It's like he took this rib and then he built a woman. I thought he did really good. What do you all think? I mean, it was just an incredible thing. So he took and he built this woman from the rib which he'd taken from the man and brought her to the man. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about that the woman was made for the man. Some people get mad at that. But this is the way God has set it up. In fact, the pattern that develops beginning here and all the way through the Scripture is the headship of the male in the family and in the church. The man is to be the head. The woman is not inferior in any way, shape, or form. It's an aspect of roles that God has provided or planned that man would be the head both in the home and in the local body. And the woman is not inferior. She is just different, and she is the helper. Notice this. He brought, it says he brought her to the man. And that's incredible. Because just imagine that he wakes up and he's seen all these animals and everything go by and nothing matched him and then suddenly coming toward him is something that matches him. And he goes, Mamma Mia. Uh, that's a spicy meatball. Yeah, I mean, that's what he's going to say, right? What does he say? And, and he brought her to the man and it's so powerful. Because, as S. Lewis Johnson says, God himself, like the father of the bride, leads the woman to the man. That's so incredible. It's so beautiful. Partnership. God is bringing together the first man and the first woman. What was the reaction by the man? And, and think what his reaction is. He says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, I've had the privilege of performing way over 200 weddings. And... There is that time when I'm standing down there and the guy's standing right there and the best man's standing right there and the girls have all come down and they're all lined up and that music changes and here comes the, usually the dad and the bride coming down that aisle and this guy, you should look at this guy right then. Because nobody's looking at that guy because everybody's looking at the girl because she's beautiful and it's really her day. But sometimes I look over that guy and he's going... Like, whoa, whoa, baby, you know, because that's what's happened. And it's the same thing, I think, that Adam, when he, you know, here it is that he, he, he goes to sleep and he wakes up and suddenly there is this woman coming to him that matches him, that fits him. I mean, this is incredible. I made the joke last week that, you know, he woke up, he realized he'd had surgery and was now married. I mean, you know, so it's, it's kind of a strange thing. But the Lord God fashioned this woman and brought her to the man. Look at Adam. He says, and you can tell the, even the way it's written, there's almost an excitement in the language. It says, the man said, this is now bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You know why he says that? He says, she matches me. Those animals, they weren't like bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. They didn't look like me. They were different. 
See, I'm different than them. I, I rule over them. I control them. I'm supposed to have dominion over the earth and, and the fish and the birds and the animals. And, I, and I'm different. And I have a relationship with God and I talk with Him. And, but nothing matches me. And suddenly I, I look up and something's matching me. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She matches perfectly. He recognized a divinely created companion as his helpmate and his partner. And he said, she shall be called woman. You remember, the Hebrew word for man is ish. And the Hebrew word for woman is isha, which means out of man. And so he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She came from the man. The woman is formed from his side. He is obligated to give her the protection. She is part of him. The two make the whole. That's why when you think about the men's role, we'll see it in just a minute, but the man is the provider protector. That's who he is. That's his role. And we'll talk more about it in a minute. But there it is. And now here's the famous verse that, that everybody quotes, that Jesus quoted in the New Testament as well. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's restated throughout the Bible. He says, for this cause, for this reason, they're bringing together the man and the woman. This is the marriage. This is a universal principle that the man shall leave his father and mother. He shall leave his household. He shall leave his family, his mom and his daddy, and she's going to leave her mom and daddy, and they're going to be joined, joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, the parent, the parent-child relationship is extremely strong. It's powerful. It's incredible. I mean, mamas and daddies love their children, but there is a relationship that is even stronger. Stronger, and that is the husband-wife relationship because there comes a time when the children leave the mama and the daddy and they join with someone else. And the old idea, they're stuck with each other. They are because it says, and he was joined to his wife. They, they, they cleave together. They're stuck together is really what it's saying. And they were stuck together. And so for this reason, a man shall leave his mom and his daddy, his father and his mother, his family relationship, his home relationship, be joined to his wife, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The key to marriage is that, first of all, you have to leave all other relationships. And the big one is your parents. You have to do that. The two then become united. Bruce Wilkinson, I love what he says, they should never even think about separating. Because God is bringing them together. It is God who says, um, uh, in this passage, God is bringing the woman to the man to bring them together. This man, for this reason, the, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the one flesh is, is kind of a unique thing. Uh, let's talk about it. Becoming one flesh, the two become one. I think I have another little slide that comes right after. The two become one physically, emotionally, spiritually, all kind of ways. Listen, when people talk about coming one flesh, there is something to this. Now, let me, let me tell you something. When I stand up there and there's this couple... And they're not married until I say, until I say, because the authority of the state, and what God has put this together, when I say, I now pronounce you husband and wife and what God has joined together, because at that moment he joins them together. What God has joined together, let no man separate. There is a uniqueness at that exact moment they become one flesh. They become one emotionally, physically, spiritually, and it's going to be lived out in that way. 
1 Corinthians 7, 4, the man belongs to the woman and the woman belongs to the man. They are one. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Now, there's still two people, but God sees them as a partnership. And I tell you what, I teach him right off as I say, no longer can you say, the moment you're married, you can't say, here's what I'm going to do because it is not you anymore. It is not you saying, I'm going to go play basketball, I'm going to move to Chicago, I'm going to do this. You cannot say that because it's not just you anymore. The two have become one. And from that point on, they're together. And it's never, this is what I'm going to do, it's this is what we're going to do. The partnership. So the couple is brought together by God, one flesh together forever, leaving parents and cleaving to each other. It is the strongest bond that there is. And Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one, what? Separate. Then look at the last part. And the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. You know what? Sin had not entered. Sin had not entered into the world at all. There was no shame. They were made for each other. They, you know, he's going, wow, and she's going, wow, this is great. Alan Ross said this. He was one of my Hebrew professors at Dallas Seminary. He said, God intended man and woman uh, to be as a spiritually, spiritual functioning unit, serving him and, and, and obeying him. I want to touch just real quickly on three things, three aspects of the whole idea of marriage. It's God's union is permanent and there are certain roles. And, and I'm just going to barely touch on them because that's, that's other studies that we go into details on this. But importance of marriage, people cannot, our culture, our society, we treat marriage as not important. It's almost like, well, you know, we, we were dating and we broke up. Well, we get married and we, we broke up. I mean, sometimes that's just the way we treat it. First of all, it's God's union. It is God who brings the man and woman together. Beginning with the very first one by God in Matthew 19, I think we've got that up there, 5 and 6, the two become one, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. We've got to realize that God is the one that brings people together. And so even though I get to do weddings, and I've done a lot of them, and I get to say, I now pronounce you husband and wife, I'm just saying that, that's part of my role, that's part of the fact that I represent God and I represent the state, because I say, by the authority vested in me, by the laws of this state, before God and these witnesses... It's, it's an incredible thing, but it is God who actually brings these people together. How important is your spouse in your life? So important. Second, it's permanent. It's permanent. The relationship is to be as long as you live. In Genesis 19.6, excuse me, in, in uh, uh, Matthew 19.60 says, Let no man separate. When you say I do, it should be I do till death do you part. You keep your word. Our society, uh, our society is so easy to, to, to get out of a marriage. Um, marriage sometimes people think love is a feeling rather than a commitment. And when you say I do, it should be I do. The third thing is, and I'm just going to barely touch on this, understand there are certain roles with the man in Ephesians 5, 5.22-33 is the whole thing. Man is to love and to lead. He is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He is to lead. He is the provider and protector of the family. He is to honor her. He is to live with her in an understanding manner. The wife is to submit and to respect. That's the part. Submission is not bad. Uh, please don't take it as the world takes it. It is a great privilege as a man and woman to come together with the different roles that God has. The wife is to submit to her husband. She is to respect him. She is to love her husband and children, be a pure woman, take care of the home, those kind of things which you find in the Scripture. She is his helpmate. She is his partner. And as they go through life together, each one with gifts, talents, abilities, strengths, roles, 
They fulfill that picture of Jesus Christ in the church. And that's what he says. He says, he goes all the way through Ephesians 5. And at the very end, he's been talking about the whole role of husband and wife. And he says, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. It's so powerful. Just like the church submits to Christ, the wife submits to her husband. Just like the husband, just like Christ loves the church enough to die for us, the husband loves the wife enough to die for her. The New Testament shows the divinely ordained relationship, the headship of man, the sacredness of the vows, the love of uniting the man and the woman, the purity and the permanence of the relationship. So we see just God's, God is the one, it's God's union is permanent in their roles. Now let me, let me show you what I've got. I've got one man, one woman becoming one flesh, living together, obeying God's word, both leaving parents and cleaving forever to the husband and wife relationship it's powerful that's genesis chapter two now it'd be great if it just stopped there but it goes to genesis chapter three in which we know what happens there's the fall and how the whole world changed and how relationships changed and everything and we'll get that next time what have we seen tonight we've seen that god created the man excuse me created the woman for the man adam named all the animals realizing that nothing matched him the woman was made from him and brought to him and the two become one flesh and in a sense that's the institution of marriage so let me give you some things tonight number one understand the importance of marriage our society and culture does not take marriage seriously but remember the three things it's god's union he brings it together it's permanent for as long as you live and there are biblical roles so let me say a few things first of all if you're single Realize how important marriage is. You're looking for that right person. What you're looking for is someone who loves Jesus Christ, who is growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and will help you grow, understands the roles. And God will bring that one into your life. And if He does, you know what you need to do? Be sure and get premarital counseling. Get with somebody and talk through the roles and make a budget and do all the things and get yourself ready to be married. Uh, there's a there's a truth that people spend more time preparing to get their driver's license than they do preparing for marriage. It's true. It is God's union. Marriage is not for everyone. And 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 when I teach on sex and dating, I teach sex dating. Uh, I usually with the college when I get to do that. Um, one of the things I say is there are advantages to being single. Now when I was single, I didn't think there were advantages. I wanted to be married from probably the age 18, 19 on. I was married when I was 36. That's a long time, at least I thought it was a long time, to be waiting. But let me tell you, there are advantages to being single. Paul talks about that. And I look back now, there are things that God allowed me to do that if I had been married, I could not have done. And so if you are single, say, Lord, I want my life to count for you while I'm single, while you have me in this situation. I just want to be faithful and available and teachable, and I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do because I realize right now, I have some advantages over people who are married that I can go do things that they can't do. So for single people, realize how important marriage is and, and uh, uh, just, just live for him now. And as that right person comes in, you trust God. You look for that right one, the one that's going to fit you, the one that's going to love the Lord, the one that's going to grow and do those things for the married. Understand the roles and obey your biblical roles. For those who are married now, just realize we're one flesh. We belong to each other. Understand our roles and our biblical roles. The whole idea that we're together. Do all you can do to make your marriage one that glorifies God and to seek to honor Him and your partner. It's powerful. And here's the third one. For those who may be divorced, Philippians 2 says, Forget the past and press on to the future. 
let me tell you, we live in a culture that there are a lot of people who are divorced. There are a lot of things. They just Things don't always work out. It's a fallen world. If everything was perfect, everybody would always be together. But Paul says, let me tell you, forget the things that are past and press on to the things that are ahead. So in your life, say, wherever you are in this situation, say, Lord, I want my life to count for you from this point on. Let me tell you, there are no second-class Christians. There are none. And there is no sin that's worse than another one. There may be some consequences that are different. There may be some other things that are different. But sin is sin. And there aren't three or four that people sit down and say, okay, these are the big three or four. And they are not. And whatever your past has been, from this day forward or from that, you can say, Lord, I just want my life to count for you. God's in the business of taking broken lives and making them new. And there are people that God had, that have had a, a, a tough situation in the past, and God is using them now and will continue to use them. So never say, well, that happened to me. I can't ever really be used by God, because as long as you are alive, He will use you for His glory. So as we see this passage, may we realize the importance of marriage. May we live our lives, whether we're married, single, or divorced, for the glory of God. Let's pray, and then we have the great privilege of celebrating, remembering the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a passage. Thank you, Lord, for these great truths. Help us to understand it, Lord. May our lives count for you. Lord, we think about marriage, how important it is. We thank you that as your union is supposed to be permanent. As it, we, uh, there are certain roles that we have. And Lord, for the single people, may they understand how important marriage is. Live their life for the glory of God even now. And if God brings the right one in, make sure it's the kind of man or the woman that lives, loves you and lives for you. For those those of us who are married, may we live our lives uh, for your glory, obeying the biblical roles, loving our husbands, loving our wives. And then, Lord, for those who have been through a, maybe a tough time and, and been divorced, or maybe divorced and remarried, it doesn't matter, Lord, wherever they are right now, that they may live for you, for your glory. Lord, we know you will take them and use them for your glory. Lord, thank you for these great truths. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.